And this morning, as Rodney said, we're going to continue to look at the subject of God's sovereignty, only this time God's sovereignty in uh, relation to both animate and inanimate creation. Uh, God's sovereignty in nature, we might say. Let me read for you the psalm this morning, and we'll go on. This is a psalm of David. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. The, uh, Yahweh breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a, wild, uh, a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. May Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with peace. Talking about God's sovereignty, and uh, this is a doctrine that all true Christians love and adore. It is a doctrine that says God is God. To say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is God. And that doctrine is always under singular attack in this world. It's attacked by the enemies of of God who, like in the words of Psalm 2, say, let us burst, let us break his chains, let us break his bonds, which is a way of saying, let us exalt ourselves over him. Let us say that we are God. To say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is God. To say that God is God is to say that he is in control. And today we're trying to to not only exalt this, this biblical doctrine, but in exalting that biblical doctrine, we want to confront Error. You see, that's always what happens. Whenever you exalt biblical doctrine, you always, by nature, confront error. And there are all kinds of error that's going on today in our world, particularly one we see called the openness of God or open theism. And if I can, can just summarize that in one way, that is to say that God is discovering things in real time. That God is finding things out as they happen. God learns things. God discovers things. We could say in a way that open theism says that God is surprised by something that happens or doesn't happen and then reacts accordingly. I remember well in when I was a, um, probably a freshman or a sophomore in Bible college, we had a man named Tony Evans come and speak at our our. Um, our Bible school at Liberty, and uh, he explained what I have come to, what at the time I thought that's really, really interesting, really, really good, but what I have come to understand as being error. He said this, 
that we have to understand that what is happening in our world is this great cosmic chess match. God makes a move, and then Satan makes a move, and then God makes a counter move, and then Satan makes a counter move, and 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 sort of to in a way to in in what I understood in a way to sort of rescue God out of this conundrum of of this great chess match. What he said ended up saying was this: that God, what what Satan doesn't know is that God knows the final move, that God knows checkmate. And to a lot of people, that's how we understand uh, sovereignty or some, some idea of sovereignty. The problem with that is, as I, as, as, and I want to, to, to hear this well, is that there are problems whenever we try to, to bring a human analogy to divine things. We have that kind of problem when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Can anybody explain to me the Trinity? No. You remember I told you before, somebody asked theologian Karl Barth, what's the greatest truth you've ever thought of, uh, the greatest theological truth that you've ever thought of? And he thought for a moment, then he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What thing, can, can you explain that? You can't explain. And what happens is we try to bring human analogies in to understand, to, to provide some understanding, but inevitably we all follow human analogies to our own perceived end and inevitably end up in error. Now, I'm not saying that, that there are no places, that there's no place for human analogies. Uh, if you listen to my sermon last week, I think ribeye steak is a good analogy, right? Oh, as far as you can take it. But we need to be careful when we're talking about these divine things. Rather, God has given us a book. Most specifically, he's given us the book of Psalms to help to and I'll use this word because I don't know what other word to use, but to help to illustrate, to help to proclaim divine truth in order to bring it into our heart. The book of Psalms is a book of worship. It's intended to to draw the people of God to consider something about him, to consider his self-revelation. The Psalms then take us into the unseen world. The Psalms take us into the unseen world. You see, what we learn in the Psalms is that divine sovereignty does not need to be defended. Just like Spurgeon spoke of the word of God, we don't defend a lion, we just let it loose. We don't need to defend divine sovereignty. I don't need to convince anyone of divine sovereignty. That's not our goal. That's not our call. What we're called to do is we're called to worship. And that's exactly the point in this psalm, in Psalm 29. Now, there are many psalms that I could have gone to. Uh, we were, I thought of going to Psalm 93, and we may invent, eventually get there. But Psalm 29, I think, is probably one of the most beautiful sections in all of the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful psalms that exalts the sovereignty of God over nature. And in this psalm, we basically see four uh, main themes or four main uh, points. We see in verses 1 and 2, there is a summons. In verses 3 through 9, there is a storm. In verse 9, there is submission. And then also in verse, uh, I'm sorry, and then verses 10 and 11, we see sovereignty. So just those four words to help us lead us through this, the understanding this psalm. Summons, storm, 
uh, submission and sovereignty. Let's begin here with verses 1 and 2, the summons. In this, these verses, David is transporting himself, as it were, into glory, into heaven, into the presence of the heavenly beings, into the presence of the sons of God, the, 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 the heavenly beings, the angelic beings. And here we have this, this creature on earth projecting into heaven, speaking, as it were, to angelic beings, calling them to ascribe to Yahweh. Every time you see the word Lord with all capital letters, it's, it's telling us that the Hebrew word that's being translated is the word Yahweh, which speaks of God's glory and grandeur, God in the fullness of all of his attributes, right? And, and David is, in this psalm, speaking to heaven, speaking to the angelic beings, calling those, summoning those angelic beings to ascribe glory to Yahweh. Ascribe means to, he is, he is calling them to acknowledge God's glory. He's calling the heavenly beings to acknowledge God's glory, to acknowledge the fact that there is none like God. Just like we read in Isaiah chapter 42, listen to this, Isaiah 42, I think it's verse 8 if I recall correctly. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you them. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. David is summoning the angelic beings to ascribe, to acknowledge the glory of Yahweh. When he says in it, to ascribe to the Lord, or ascribe to Yahweh heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory, and then he says in verse 2, glory due to his name, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. He's speaking here of kingly language. He is is calling the, the angelic beings to recognize, or maybe better, to acknowledge the kingly glory of Yahweh. That that he is on the throne, that he rules and that he reigns, to acknowledge God in his glory. We have to be careful of what, and I believe the, the illustration that I gave you earlier is, is an important one. Uh, the, we have to be careful of what is called dualism. To have this idea that there are two fairly equal deities duking it out in the world. R.C. Sproul has said, Christianity is not a religion of dualism by which God and Satan are equal and opposite opposing forces destined to fight an eternal struggle that must result in a tie. God is sovereign over his entire creation, including the subordinate domain of Satan. God is the Lord of death as well as life. He rules over pain and disease as sovereignly as he rules over prosperity. In other words, what we have to understand is that chaos is not reigning. 
When we say that God is, is, is on the throne, that God is, is, is established on his throne, that, that he is worthy of glory or that he, we are to acknowledge his glory, we're saying that chaos is not reigning. That in some way, God is reigning. This is, again, king language. He is the king. Ascribe to Yahweh glory. But not only to acknowledge his glory, he says to acknowledge his strength. He, again, David is in this psalm that, that, that is a song that is used in worship. It's as if the worshipers are transporting themselves to glory and calling all of the angelic beings to recognize what is clearly evident to them. What is that? That God is on the throne. That he is ruling and that he is reigning. Not only that he is on the throne, but that he is, he is uh, they are to acknowledge his strength. That gives the idea that the king who is on the throne is able to carry out all of his decrees. He is exclusively able to carry out all of his decrees. There is no room for dualism. There aren't two competing deities here. These are the decrees of the king. And whatever he says most surely comes to pass. He is the king. And what does that do? That leads to worship, just like I said. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It leads to worship. To, to, to at some point, to subordinate yourself. He's, he's calling the angelic creatures to subordinate themselves under God. To yield to his will. You see, that's what, always, uh, that's what genuine worship is. Genuine worship is fueled by recognizing or acknowledging God's majestic glory. Does that mean we have to understand everything perfectly in order to, to come to worship? No. In fact, isn't that what spiritual growth is all about? Isn't that what the process of spiritual maturity is? Growing and understanding and going through life and learning more about God and bringing yourself into humble submission to him, this summons to the heavenly beings. Now remember, in the Psalms, God reveals himself. He reveals himself in scripture with crystal clear clarity. There's, there's, no, there's no room for wiggling here. There's, there's no secondary king. There's no almost rule. There's no partial reign. This is a God on the throne. And all of heaven is called to worship. And then he... So, so, so we have that scene in heaven. You can just imagine, like in the book of Revelation, the four and twenty elders falling down around the throne and the, the, the seraphim and the cherubim uh, exclaiming to one another the, the majesty and the greatness of our God. And then... It's as if David steps out of heaven and then he thinks about something that's going on in earth. What does he think about? He thinks about a storm. David envisions a storm that's forming off to the north and to the west in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. He's imagining this this, this terrible, horrible, powerful storm. 
and maybe this already happened. Maybe this is what happened in Israel, and, and maybe there's been this terrible storm, and David comes back after the storm and writes this psalm for the gathered worshipers to give them some perspective, to, to bring them to worship in the midst of their most recent experience. And he imagines this storm that forms from the west and the north and comes down from the north and encompasses, excuse me, encompasses the promised land and then goes off into the wilderness, into the desert from north to south. It's a very, very powerful storm. Notice in verse 3 how the storm gathers in the sea. The voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord or Yahweh over many waters. What do you have here? You, you have, you see, what David is saying is that this storm that's coming together is not coming together by accident. You see what he's saying? This isn't some cosmic tragedy. Again, I tell you, friends, chaos is not reigning. These things are not just happening. But rather, it is God in his personal involvement. God in his word. God is speaking over the waters. He is the God over the waters. He is the God over this gathered storm. It is coming, forming in the Mediterranean Sea, verses 3 and 4, from north to south, verses 5 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 9, it passes overhead and goes down into the wilderness. Seven times in this passage, verses 3 through 9, seven times, the number of perfection, the number of completion, seven times we read the voice of Yahweh. You can't mistake this. This is not a cosmic tragedy. This is not a cosmic accident. The voice of the Lord. He is speaking and he is speaking with absolute supremacy, absolute superiority. Think of the voice of Jesus when he calmed the storm and instantaneously the sea was calm. It wasn't still doing this. It was just like glass. That's what happens. It is in the storm that we're to hear the commanding voice of Yahweh. And there are these these three scenes that I want you to see. First scene, verses 3 and 4, as I said, he's over the waters. Again, we're speaking here of the Mediterranean Sea. We're speaking here of this violent thunderstorm, this violent electrical storm what was it on i don't remember the day was it tuesday or wednesday about four o'clock in the morning maybe it was monday i don't even remember four o'clock in the morning i could hear the storm you could hear the thunder coming from the the south and the west and you could just hear it rumble 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 and get closer and closer and closer and that's what david sees That's what David imagines. He calls attention to this powerful, violent thunderstorm, this powerful, violent electrical storm. And it is the Lord who is the one who is gathering the storm. Note he is over. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. This is is flood speak. This is, this is and, and by the way, we know for sure that David has in mind the universal flood as he's speaking here 
because he talks about the flood in verse 10. And the word that he uses for flood is the word that is only ever used to refer, in the Old Testament, used to refer to the universal flood. He is the one who is over. He's not, in other words, he's not sitting back, wringing his hands at what's happening. He's not sitting back. You see, so often that's what we think about God. We, we see some, some terrible storm that comes up and we think God had nothing to do with that or that God is wringing his hands. Yet the same people who think God has nothing to do with that will still pray, God, stop the storm. You see how dualism has affected our thinking? This is a powerful storm. The elements cannot... Uh, but, but not only is it a powerful storm, this is a powerful God. And the elements cannot help but to do his will because he is majestic. He is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh is full of kingly majesty. Everything submits to him. And then you go to scene two in verses five through seven. And in verses five through seven, David, he goes, you can see it there in verses 3 and 4. But the storm's gathering. The thunder is, 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 is powerful. The lightning is ferocious. The storm comes. And then in scene 2, verses 5 through 7, the storm breaks on the land. It comes from the west, from the north and the west. And it comes crashing in on the land. It crashes in on the cedars of Lebanon. But it's not the storm that breaks the cedars. He says it's the voice of of Yahweh that breaks the cedars like matchsticks. It's, you, you know, you've heard something, if you're a student of the Bible at all, you've heard something about the cedars of Lebanon, right? Those cedars that were, that were cut down, hewn down in order to, to build the pillars in the temple. Some of them, uh, historians tell us, would, would be as big as 40 feet around. These are not the kind of trees like pine trees we have today where they have, you know, the, the uh, uh, root system uh, that's so shallow and so fallow and it just uproots. These are deep-rooted, strong, majestic trees, and he says he breaks them. The voice of the Lord breaks them like matchsticks. Those spectacular trees are, are broken down. That's what happens when the storm comes off the sea and just crashes against the cedars of Lebanon. But there's something else that's going on here. You see, when he mentions Lebanon, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon and then he he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian. Lebanon and Syrian, they are talking about, the, 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 the word Syrian is the Phoenician word for Mount Hermon. And Lebanon is a reference to Mount Lebanon. Two of the big mountains in that area. The Canaanites believed that this was the that that amongst these mountains that this was the abode of the gods. This is where the gods inhabited. And you hear the voice of the Lord come crashing in and and laying to ruin the cedars of Lebanon and making the the, the mountains to shake. Syrian and Mount Lebanon, making them to shake, like skip like a young wild ox. Imagine you see a, a, a young wild ox out somewhere just playing and dancing all around. It seems to have no rhyme or reason, kicking and heaving and whatever else. He says, that's the picture here. 
And you think David has, a, has something in mind. He's telling his people, you have a God who is over all, who, who even the gods of, of, of the world obey him. He has the picture here, verse 7, with, with uh, the Lord Yahweh himself flashing forth flames of fire. You, you see the, the lightning here, perhaps that ignites fires in the wilderness. This, the lightning storm that brings fire, shaking the wilderness, shaking the wilderness of Kadesh. Now, either he's talking about Kadesh Barnea in the south, or maybe further in the north, there was an area that was sometimes called Kadesh in, northern, in, in, in uh, um, southern Lebanon. But if you have the picture here, you have the picture of the storm coming off of the the Mediterranean from the north and the west coming down in Lebanon and then making a turn and coming down over the the promised land, coming down over Israel and going down over to the south and out to to the desert, to the wilderness. And it's shaking the wilderness, shaking the wilderness so much so that that it causes the deer to give birth. (laughs) So terrifying this storm is that it makes the, the, the deer give birth prematurely. You have the, the instance of this power, this, this might. That's scene three. It goes down from the wilderness, uh, down from the north to the wilderness of the south. And what David is doing is saying this, these things are not happening by accident. I want you to worship God. He's saying to the people of God, this, this is not chaos. Chaos is not r- reigning. Chaos is not ruling. And what happens? At the end of verse 9, there is submission. And in his temple, here's, here's the idea, in his temple. And I, I think it must be a reference to the temple there in Jerusalem as they see and feel the majestic power of this storm going overhead. And what does everybody say in the temple? The same thing that they are saying that the angels are called to proclaim and acknowledge in his heavenly temple, is taking place on the earthly temple. What is that? Glory. Oh, I used to have a professor in college. His name was Sumner Wimp, and he was known to say, well, glory. That's what he all, well, glory. But this is, this is, this is a, an idea that goes beyond that. This is so powerful. There is, there is a shout to this. But it is a humble shout. They're seeing God in his glory in the midst of the storm. They're recognizing that God is in control. It's it's what happens here in, if I can find it quickly, in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verse 2. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. God is in control. He is saying to the people, do not turn to idols. Why? Because God destroys idols. What is an idol? An idol is a human conception. Do not turn to your human conception about deity. Go to him where he reveals himself. 
Which is where? The Word. That's why I said earlier, we need to be careful of these illustrations and, and, and be really careful with them not to press something that God doesn't press. Go to the Word. Don't turn to idols. Don't turn to your own human conceptions about God. God destroys them. God makes them skip like a wild ox, a young wild ox. They are under his command. They they are all in submission. Oh, well, glory. David imagines all of Israel gathering as one and they agree with the angels. Glory. They agree with the angels. He is king. They agree with the angels. He is in control. Now listen, friends. This is something I've come to to understand through the years uh, of of being a Christian, uh, of being a pastor, much less being a Christian. When you encounter the storm of the Lord, you don't sit around debating. (laughs) You don't, you know what you do? You fall on your knees. You remember last week I told you that, that, that what has to happen in our lives is there needs to be some, some tenderizing in our lives. And that's what happens as you, you marinate and sometimes as you're tenderized, you, you, know, you get, get pounded and then other times you just age. And, and as you age, something happens in your life where you start to recognize you, there's a whole lot you ain't got figured out. But you also recognize there's a whole lot you don't have to have figured out. We don't understand. There, there's lots we don't understand, but we do know him. And we know him, that he is in control. And he said, when it comes to these issues, as Rodney said earlier, we'll talk a little bit more. He said that he is not the one who makes sin. He doesn't cause sin. So never say that. Never say that God causes sin. Never say God creates sin. Well, you don't understand that? How he can not create sin, yet be over. He is not morally responsible for sin, yet he is over that? Of course you don't understand it. Paul tried to get a little bit of that, a glimpse of that in, in, in Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We know that he works all things together. And then he said something later. He said, in all of this, we are more than what? Conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? A conqueror conquers an enemy, but a more than conqueror presses that enemy to make that enemy submit to his will. And that's why Paul could say, none of these things move me. That's why Paul could say that the light temporary trial that I'm enduring is working forward. It's producing a far more eternal weight in glory. What happens in this life is we begin to learn as you age, you begin to learn that the things that go on as you submit to God and understand that, that he is pressing things to make them serve his agenda. You, you come away going, you know, the trial that I'm enduring right now is a trial but it's a temporary trial. 
It's a trial that is producing a far more eternal weight of glory. It's, it's actually working for you. It's actually producing something in you. And what is that? It is producing a far greater capacity to worship. God, that's what it means to be more than a conqueror. It's not this, 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 this prosperity gospel junk. It's God making even the things you don't understand serve his purpose. So we go from the summons to the storm to submission. And then he closes here in verses 10 and 11. Let me read it again. The Lord, or Yahweh, sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. May Yahweh give strength to his people. May Yahweh bless his people with peace. We move to the, the whole point of the psalm is sovereignty. The natural, or can I say the supernatural response to this truth is asking. The, the same thing that people ask, you remember, I, I, I wasn't here at the time, but many of you were here around September the 11th, 2001. People were asking the question, where is God? Where is God? And that's the, the, the natural question that people ask. And David is answering the question, where is God? He's enthroned over the flood. And again, that, that language, flood there, is the Hebrew word that is only ever used to speak of the universal flood. And he sees him as being over that. Not just permitting, not just allowing, but over. He is enthroned. He is, he is enthroned. Remember in, in Revelation 5, uh, is it 5 or 4? I think it's 5. Anyway, John sees the glimpse of heaven. And maybe it's chapter 4, whatever. He sees a glimpse of heaven of the throne that is set in heaven. And it's the word set is the word that means firmly fixed, immovable. This throne is firmly fixed. It is immovable. It, he sits enthroned. He sits enthroned back then over the flood. And David would say, and he sits enthroned now, even though this, this storm has raged. And praise God, he sits in, enthroned forever. The, the, the idea here is he was over the flood. He's over the storm. And now people understand this. There's nothing possible that could be outside of his control. Chaos is not reigning. Then, now, and forever. So what? So find your strength in him. May Yahweh give strength to his people. Isn't that what we need? Strength in the midst of the storm? Or maybe even more strength after the storm? You've seen the the debris and the terrible things that happen after a storm. And, And what is it that we need? What is it you need when a when a quote-unquote storm strikes your life, you need strength. And where's that strength going to come from? I'll tell you what it's not going to come from. It's not going to come from me saying, I'm sorry, but God had no idea this was going to happen. Find your strength in Him. Be strengthened in Him. Worship 
him. Trust him. This is the only truth that will bring you peace. It's the only truth that will bring you strength in the midst of chaos. And so, yeah, wrestle. Wrestle with these things. In as much as you wrestle with the truth of the Trinity that you, that you, you can't grasp but you believe. And as much as you grapple and wrestle with the truth of, of, of the love of God in Christ. But know this. Say what God says. Come down to what he has, re- how he has revealed himself. Well, he calls all of the people to come and and worship the Lord. Let me just take you quickly to Psalm 93 and then we'll close. Again, I, I love the Psalms. When, when I want something that, that's going to illustrate, proclaim some truth about some divine truth, I want to go to the Psalms and just sit in awe. And here you have a similar truth in this in this what's called the enthronement psalm this enthronement psalm there are eight of them this is the first of eight which celebrates the sovereign rule of god the lord or yahweh reigns he is robed in majesty the lord is robed he has put on strength as his belt yes the world is established it shall never be moved your throne is established from of old you are from everlasting the floods have lifted up o lord the floods have lifted up their voice the floods lift up their roaring Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And then how, how does he communicate this? He says it this way. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. You see, God, God is not resting. God is ruling Psalm 47, 8, God, God doesn't seek permission. He grants permission. Psalm 115, 3. God's authority is not limited. Psalm 135, 6. He is majestic and powerful and immutable and eternal in his sovereignty. That's why holiness befits your house. Thinking here today, we can say, what, 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 what is the... What's the end of of this doctrine of sovereignty? It's holiness befits your house. You are being built up as a holy house unto the Lord. Holiness befits you. it's, It's what could be expected to come out of this great and glorious doctrine of God. It affects your holiness. That is, it affects you in that you live as if God exists and he's not somehow on the periphery, but that he's central. That he's central. In many ways, uh, my assignment today is kind of easy because all I had to do was just tell you what God says. I remember... Misky, you remember this. We were in Ethiopia teaching the book of Romans. First day. I, I don't remember how it went. Misky will tell you better. But uh, first day, hands go up with questions. And they were not happy questions. They were mad questions because you could see it on their faces. 
I said, no, please, please, don't, don't ask questions yet. We only have a few days on, on Thursday or Friday, whatever it was. When we finish the book of Romans, then I'll give you time for questions. And we come to chapter 3, we talk about total depravity, and we talk about divine sovereignty, and questions go up. Second day, hands, please, please just wait, please wait. Wednesday comes, hands go up. Thursday comes, hands go up. We finally finish on Friday, and we finish with chapter 16. You remember taking the deep breath and going, so now, brothers, ask your questions. And not a hand. It, there was not a single hand, was there, Mr. Not a single hand. And, and Mr. Kerr said, well, brothers, what happened? And they said something like this. We came prepared to argue with you, not with God. We came prepared to argue with you, not with God. And that's really what happens in the Psalms. Boy, you, you want me to explain how things can happen? Or how, you want me to exp- I, I can't explain this. All I would say to you is take a deep breath. Let time go on. And every time that you, you come to what, what God says, just believe what he says. And as you mature and as you age and as the storms of, of, of God break on your life, you'll come to say, I, there is nothing else. Who have I in heaven <laughs> but thee? Let's pray.